0: If you enjoy studying the Bible but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and the few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit getfedtoday.com. And again, that's getfedtoday.com.
1: First Kings chapter 18, the challenge was, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The people, they answered not a word. Then said Elijah to the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord. He was wrong there. He had an Elijah complex. (laughs) But Baal's prophets are 450 men. God loves those odds, 450 to 1. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks, let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under it and i will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under and call ye on the name of your gods and i will call on the name of the lord and the god that answers by fire let him be god and all the people answered and said well spoken, great idea. Now Ahab and the prophets of Baal have just been put on the spot because the element of Baal is fire. The Phoenicians in their writings tell us they believe that Carmel was where the throne of Baal was. So Elijah's got him in his own backyard and says in front of all the people, how about this? Now, it took the ravens at Careth and the barrel and the crews and the widow's son to get him to this point where he's expecting anything from God. And he says, how about this? Get a couple of bulls. You cut yours up, put it on the altar, put the wood under it, call on Baal, and I'll cut up mine and put it on the wood and call on Jehovah and the God it answers by fire. He's God. All the people said, yeah, great idea. So the prophets of Baal have no choice at this point in time. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first. For you are many and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. And that's when the sun's and it's it's full. That's the time of of Baal's power. Saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. You know, like this guy. (laughs) And he said, well, cry aloud, for certainly he's God. Well, maybe he's talking. Maybe he's in a conversation, meditating or translating. Let me say that. Maybe he's pursuing. King James kills the fun out of this. Maybe he's going potty, (laughs) is what that says. (laughs) Or maybe he's on a journey. He's in Club Med. Or perhaps he's sleeping. It's siesta time. You need to scream louder to wake him up, and he must be awakened. And the people were going, <laughs> So they cried the louder. They, they, they responded. And they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, three in the afternoon, that there was neither voice nor any answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all of the people, Take notice, come near unto me. And all of the people came near. And that's what we want to do this evening. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. You know, interesting, what altar of the Lord was on Carmel? And certainly it should have been at Jerusalem, but there was some altar from antiquity that God had honored there. He repaired the altar of the Lord. I know for those of you who saw the film, one of the things that happened to some degree in your hearts was the altar of the Lord was repaired in your hearts. He remembered what he did for you. You were overwhelmed once again, just like when you were first saved, that he went there for you, that it was your sins that put him there. Elijah said to the people, Draw near. And they drew near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. How sad. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, And said, fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time, twelve barrels. And the water ran round about the altar, and and it filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know. That thou art the Lord God. And you'll notice, in the, at least in the King James, the word that is in italics. And thou hast turned. It's in the present tense. Let's read it again, verse 37. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that you are turning their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it no longer halting between two opinions they fell on their faces and they said the Lord he is God the Lord he is God And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slew them there. This scene now. God instructing this man and leading him. This is a people that twice a day said the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they hadn't done that, and they weren't doing that. They were commanded to do it, but it wasn't happening. And God wanted their hearts. God wants our hearts. Paul says it's with the heart that man believes unto salvation, not the intellect. If this was based on IQ, I wouldn't be here. Uh... Many of us wouldn't be here. God honors the deeper part of man, and the heart drives us. Desire is more powerful than intellect. And the heart will always make a convert of the mind. I have people in our church that are brilliant, PhDs, that will fall into sin. And they'll come and say, I don't know how this happened. And the way it happened is the heart was wayward. And there was desire. And slowly it made a convert of the mind, where the mind said, well, yeah, well, my wife doesn't treat me. Yes, well, why shouldn't I? Well, that, you know. And, and it, if God has our hearts, he has us, because it's from the heart that the issues of life flow forth. And he wants their hearts, so he takes them into this scene. All right, you bell guys, pick out your ox cut them in pieces, lay them on the wood, call on Baal. So the Baal guys get started calling on Baal. Calling all bells. Earth to Baal. <laughs> Come in, Bell. You know, calling on Baal. Hours. And Elijah's probably going, <whistles> You know, and, and three hours at least till noon. Now it's the high point of the day when Baal should answer. And they're screaming. Now they start jumping on and off the altar. You know, they're, they're, they're crying. And then you, you can hear, you know, this, this is the man of the still small voice. God probably said to him, Mock them. He said, Really, Lord? Say, Surely Baal is God. Oh, surely Baal, he's God, of course, maybe you need to yell louder. Say, maybe he's on vacation. (laughs) Maybe he's on vacation. (laughs) Say, maybe he's going to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Really, Lord? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a siesta and they gotta wake him up. Yeah, that's a good one, Lord. Maybe he's sleeping and you guys gotta wake him up, you know. Yeah, I almost, you know, you, you sense something of divine sarcasm and <laughs> cynicism in this. Because there's no atonement from Baal, from the gods of this world. They leave us in our deserts and in our parched conditions, in our drought and there's no answer. We worship them and worship them and worship them, and we end up caught up with them, and then when we need, there's nothing there. They don't answer. And, you know, what happens is the Lord, if we, if we turn away and we turn away and we turn away, the Lord finally says, okay, have at it. Have at it. My uncle in uh, New Jersey, he's with the Lord now. He was a Iwo Jima, marine, tough old guy, great guy. And he had this dog that he didn't get along with. And the dog would eat his chickens once in a while. And my uncle I remember putting the chickens through this funnel upside down, cutting our heads off, you know, and just... And he'd find that dog with a chicken once in a while. And he kicked the dog and whipped the dog and did all the dog stuff, trying to teach them, and the dog wouldn't cooperate. So he finally got that dog when he had a chicken, and he took that chicken and he duct-taped it around that dog's neck and tied it there. <laughs> And he left it there for about a month. <laughs> that dog didn't even want to go in his own doghouse with himself. <laughs> and when he took that chicken off, that dog never went near a chicken again. <laughs> and we're that way. We can start to worship at some other altar, and the challenge is, hey you're halting between two opinions you're limping you're crippled you're passing over the decision either follow god or follow baal as you're going to find out in your droughts when your brooks dry when everything's parched that those gods can't answer there's no atonement there's no forgiveness notice he's not praying for god to answer by rain God has to answer by fire because the drought is only a symptom of the sin of the people. And the rain can't return until the fire comes. It will be fire first to make atonement. And once atonement is made for sin, then the rain can return. Well, after he mocks them, they then go off the deep end. They start cutting themselves. Alfred Edersheim in his Old Testament history said it would be common for them to bite mouthfuls of flesh out of their forearm, and they're, you know, they're jumping and screaming and bleeding, and finally by three in the afternoon, they're dehydrated, they're tired, they're falling down, and Elijah says, okay, had your chance. And then he says to the people of Israel, draw near and you can see them come in close to this man and there's some broken down thing there, a place of burning the altar of the Lord broken down and he takes 12 stones and they knew what he was doing, one for each of the tribes, they're being reminded of something and some of them had probably never seen this There's eight wicked dynasties that had been in the north. And the north had been given to idolatry. And there's a generation drawing close to him now that had never seen what was about to take place, what maybe they had only heard of. And they watched as he put 12 stones in place. And then he took the wood and he put it there. There. And it says, Then he took the ox and he cut it in pieces. When he had talked to Baal's prophets, he said to dress it. Leviticus said they flayed it. And what he did was he took that ox and he skinned it. You read the procedure in Leviticus. And he took the head off. He put the head on the altar. And he put the entrails and the caul and the fat around the head. The blood was running. And he piled the legs then on top. And when it was done, what they looked at was hideous. It was a monstrosity. It was deformed. And then he poured the water over it. And he said, Lord... Let them know that this is happening at your word. And let them know that you're the one, Lord, who is turning their hearts back to yourself. And it says, the fire of God fell from heaven. This is eternal fire. It tells us in Jude that the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah was eternal fire. This was the fire of God's wrath, and it fell down. No ordinary fire. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the rocks. It consumed the water. And the people were moved. And they turned with their hearts back to the Lord. I think, well, application. What does it mean to us? How do we make application of this scene? God wants our hearts. Somebody needs to repair the altar of the Lord. Jeffrey Hayden surveyed over 7,000 Protestant ministers. He asked them, do you believe that the scriptures is the inerrant word of God? 95% of Episcopalians said no. 87% of Methodists said no. 82% of Presbyterians said no, we don't believe the Bible is the word of God. 77% of American Lutherans, 67% of American Baptists. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? 60% of Methodists said no. 49% of Presbyterian ministers said no. 44% of Episcopalians said no. 34% of American Baptists said no. The altar of the Lord is broken down. It's broken down and in need of repair. God says, choose me, follow me, because there's life there, you'll be blessed. But he can't just command us. He has to take hold of our hearts. We're told in 1 John, in this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation, the place where wrath is satisfied. John says we love him because he first loved us. We are responders, all of us. Your wife says to you, and you say to her, (laughs) we're responders. All of us. I know what doesn't happen here. It happens in Philadelphia. I'm just using it as an example. And God knows that as we see his love for us, as we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, that he'll have more of our hearts. How do we know he loves us? And people do that all the time. You know, people will come up, you know, people say, well, if if God loves me, he'll get me this job. I know it. If God loves me, he'll give me this woman to be my wife. Two years later, they're saying, you love me, and you gave me this woman to be my wife? (laughs) If God loves me, he'll give me a promotion, get me into a mortgage. wonderful to be $100,000 in debt. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He will not allow us to put anything next to that. But God, if you love me, you'll heal me of my illness or my child. No, here in his love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I've got two sons, Mike is 22 years old, he's working in the ministry with us at Philly, the youth pastors. Joshua just turned 17, my Joshua, my Yeshua. When he was four and a half years old, he, uh, he had his tonsils out. About ten days after the surgery, we went and uh, went out to dinner. And my secretary, Judy, was babysitting the kids. And uh, I remember it because I ate the salad and the steak just got to the table. Still mourning over that. And the waitress came and said, uh, are you Joe and Kat? We were out with another couple, yeah. And uh, someone's on the phone for her. And I went it was Judy. And she said, I see blood in Josh's throat. He was four and a half. So I had to leave the steak. <laughs> <laughs> went home, looked in, flashlight, blood, called Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. They said, bring him down. We took him down. And they said one of the scabs sloughed off in the back. They threw an IV in him. They admitted him. Kept him overnight. He wasn't happy about that at all. The next day, the surgeon came in, looked, and said, well, I think it stopped, and uh, they discharged him. Well, later that day, it started to bleed again, only worse. Now, he did not want to go back and get another IV and go back in the hospital, so he swallowed blood all afternoon. About eight o'clock at night, he started to scream, saying, my tummy, my tummy, and we went running, and I looked in his mouth, could see the blood again, and he started to turn white, his lips started to turn blue, so we picked him up to run out the door, and as we did, he started the seizure. We got into the van, and I headed for the closest hospital. I had a trauma unit, and as I did, he was unconscious, and the blood started to shoot out of his mouth. So much blood came out of his mouth, I couldn't see out the windshield, and I had to wipe the blood off the inside of the windshield to see where I was going. I'm doing 90 miles an hour. I'm going through red lights, and my wife is holding him, and he's gushing, and she's saying, drive faster, drive faster. I'm thinking, you know, this will be the end of all of us here. you know. But I remember thinking, this is not goodbye. This is see you later. This is what the gospel is all about. This kid's dying, but I'm going to see him in heaven. I remember thinking that. And we got to the trauma unit. By then he had stopped. He's he's shaking, his lips are blue, he's all white, and we go running in, we're both covered with blood. And the nurse in emergency says, do you have medical insurance? Could I see your paperwork? (laughs) No, I'm trying to be a pastor, you know? I said, lady, if my son dies, you're going to need medical insurance. (laughs) Or maybe something not that nice. You know, I said, take care, you know, get them stabilized. I'll give you my paper. You know, so this doctor came over and he said, "Uh, I saw in your paperwork at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. I said, yeah. He said, is a place up the mall? I said, yeah. He said, my wife went on your women's retreat last year. She loved it. And I thought, well, great here. I made a scene. And uh." (laughs) he said, let's pray. So we bowed our hearts, you know. And I had this great sense, okay, Lord, you're involved. He, God had never answered the why of it. Why did he let that happen? He lost over half of his blood. He ended up in the hospital for seven days. He bled out over half his blood. Now that was my Joshua. And if I had the power to stop that, I would have stopped that in an instant. And I know that our Father in Heaven loves His Joshua more than we love our children. In fact, He loves us more than we love our children. And that's why He says to us, here in His love, that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Imagine in Gethsemane, when Jesus is crying to the Father and pleading. He's sweating blood, hemotydrosis. And it tells us that night that Peter warmed himself by the fire because it was cold. And Jesus was sweating and agonizing. And his cry was, Father, let this cup pass, if there's any way. Jesus was not agonizing in Gethsemane because of the beating. He was not agonizing because of the scourging. He was not agonizing because of the humiliation or the crucifixion. He was agonizing because of the cup, because of the atonement, what no cinematographer could ever put on film that happened there, the cup. Psalm 75 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof, all of the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Jeremiah, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all of the nations to whom I send thee to drink it, and they shall drink, and be moved, and be mad, because of the word that I will send among them. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand, and I made all nations to drink, to whom the Lord sent me, and it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then shalt thou say to them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Revelation chapter 14 says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended forever and forever. And they have no rest day or night, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. He had exchanged cups. I want you to remember that as we have communion tonight. He had given them the cup of fellowship with the Father at the Last Supper, and then he had gone into Gethsemane to take the cup that was rightfully ours. If there's any way they can be saved— He sweat blood. It tells us in Hebrews 5, he cried out to the Father and was heard in that he feared. He never agonized to raise the dead or to rebuke the wind and the sea or to cleanse a leper. He agonized in Gethsemane when he prayed and he sweat blood. And it says an angel had to come to strengthen him so he could agonize further. And he was pleading with the Father. And heaven was silent. And I think, what would it take for me to have my son Joshua crying to me, pleading out, sweating blood, so distraught, and for me to remain silent? that I love you that much, that I would there remain silent. And they came, it says, and they took him. They beat him. They blindfolded him, so that when they hit him, he couldn't duck. It says in Isaiah 50, he gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those who ripped out the beard says in Isaiah 52, verse 14, his visage was more marred than any man. He no longer had the form of a human being. He was beaten so badly, his face. And I think, what would it take for me if I had all authority and all power, I could stop that to watch my son brutalized and beaten beyond human recognition and people spitting on him. I'm telling you this, you mess with my kids, you mess with me. Our neighbor has a dog, and I don't like the dog anyway. It's a pretty big dog. And one day it got loose, and Hannah and Josh, my two youngest, were in the front lawn, and I happened to be going to a funeral, so I had my hard shoes on, my big black shiny shoes. And he's going after them, and they're screaming, and I come running out, and I say to the dog, "Yo!" and he looks at me, and he heads straight at me, and I thought, all right. And I, and, I, and, I, and I waited till he got about three foot away, and I drop kicked him. Boom. His, he was coming with his mouth open. And I hit him right under the jaw. And I heard his teeth go slam. And he went, oh, 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 oh. And, then, and I look, and there's my neighbor standing there. You know? <laughs> Keep your dog tied up. But those are my kids. I saw them bound and beaten and spit on, their hair ripped out of their head, and I was God Almighty and had all power and authority, and I restrained myself and remained silent. And he was taken, and he was scourged. Many times, the person that was scourged died from the scourging. If Jesus was a mortal He may have died from the scourging, but if he'd have died from the scourging, our sins would not have been forgiven. He kept his frame alive. When he could say it was finished, he gave up the ghost, but he retained the ghost until atonement was complete. How much blood did he bleed out in the scourging? We don't know. Often the ribs were exposed, the bowels were exposed from a scourging. And the father restrained himself. I can't imagine, I can't imagine, you fathers, to, to have the power to stop that and to restrain yourself. The crown of thorns, the cross, the crucifixion, the nails, father forgive them for they know not what they do. And heaven was silent. And as he's hoisted into the sky, somewhere in those three hours of darkness, somehow the sin of the world comes upon him. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, every man to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Iniquity means to be twisted, to be bent. It speaks of the perverted part of what we are as humans. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of the sins of Adolf Hitler, of Osama bin Laden, every lustful and angry thought we've ever thought, every wrong thought we ever had, every outburst, every bit of anger and selfishness, every abortion, every bit of homosexuality. my, My son is upright. My Joshua. And I think, what would it be like for me to somebody come and say, your son's a homosexual. He's a child pornographer. He's a murderer. He who knew no sin became sin. And you know what that looked like? A monstrosity. That's why that bull's head was cut off, and the call, and the fat, and the entrails were laid around it, and the legs were piled on top of it because what was on that cross was a monstrosity. It was a man beaten beyond human recognition, and in the invisible realm, the filth and the sin of mankind was piled on top of him. And heaven was silent. And when the sin of the world came upon Christ on the cross, that's when he cried, My God, my God, why? He was cut off. He didn't have information. All through his ministry he said, I don't say anything unless the Father says it. I don't do anything unless the Father does it. Father, I know that you hear me, but I pray out loud for the sake of those that are standing by. And all of a sudden, for the first time in eternity, the triune God, in some mystery we'll never understand, is divided. And the son is crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Imagine my son screaming to me, brutalized, beaten, dad, why have you forsaken me? Dad, why don't you answer? You can stop this. Why don't you do something about it? I thought you loved me. Why don't you answer? And the answer comes. Finally, heaven moves and fire. The cup of God's wrath is poured out. That's heaven's answer. Why have you forsaken me? And the fire of God falls on his own son, satisfying all his own wrath for me for you my sins were there when your sins were there that's why when the fire falls on Carmel it's so complete because Christ would say it is finished it's done and the fire of God burn up the sacrifice and the wood and the stone and the water and It lent a burnt hole in the ground, because everything was taken care of, everything. Here in his love, not that he gives us a wife or a job, or he won't let us compare anything, anything here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he sent his son into the world to be the propitiation of. For our sins, the place where wrath is satisfied. And the altar of the Lord is in need of repair. It's broken down. So much of what calls itself the church is embracing all kinds of things, doesn't want to hear about sin, doesn't want to hear about the death of Christ, wants to be inclusive, wants to be nice. We want to have services for nice people and we want to have nice services and we don't want to offend anybody and we want to be nice. And the center of our message is that we're sinners and that we're forgiven and that it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross so that we could be cleansed, so that God could stoop down to us and call us His sons. And God says, come near. And Elijah says, repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down we can expect good things from God and we should and we're told cast all of our care upon him that he gives us good things but when it comes to his love there is no proof that he will allow to come next to the cost what it cost him to accomplish these things so that his son might be in us, no sin becoming sin, that you and I might be the very righteousness of God. It was the unseen part of it that was the true monstrosity, the unthinkable the thing that in the ages to come we'll still be learning about, the infinite sacrifice that he suffered there somehow eternally, and the cup of God's wrath was poured out without admixture, and the smoke of the torment of that cup ascends forever and forever. I don't understand that. And God lets me and you peer at it to a degree. And there's some thing there between the father and the son that's almost unimaginable. I put myself in that place with my own son and take myself through the scenario and think, that's unimaginable. But the remarkable thing is tonight that his son, through that sacrifice, is found in us. That he stoops down and calls us his sons. Sandy McIntosh, Mike's wife, one of the times she was back, told us about a woman on the West Coast and her daughter was in a, a bad accident and was on life support. And the doctors came and said, your daughter or your son, maybe it was a little boy, I forget, is not going to live. And we have a child here that needs a heart transplant. We'll keep your child on life support, we'll do the best we can, but would you sign the papers?" And the parents said, with one consideration, that the parents who are gonna receive the heart would let us at some point at least see their child. And of course, those parents so desperate said, without question, and it came to the point where the life support had to be turned off and the doctors trying to be as courteous as they could and they rushed the child out and they took the heart. And they put it into the other child. And when that other child was mending, the parents were allowed to come. And the parents of the child that received the heart, of course, were thanking them and it was uncomfortable and The mother said, why is it really that you wanted to come? She said, because I wanted to bow down and hear my son's heart beating one more time. Can I do that? And the mother said, of course. And the mother and father bent down and they put their ear on this little child's chest and they heard their son's heart beating there. And God did that for us. Oh, he can command us. (laughs) How long halt ye between two opinions? Choose this day. If God is God, follow him. If Baal is Baal, follow him. And we can say, well, that's right. I know that's right. But he doesn't have us until he has our heart. He doesn't have us until he says, "Come, come near. And look at this. And watch the blood flow. And look how monstrous it is. But I want you to know that it's me turning your hearts back to myself. And as you watch this fire fall, I want you to know how complete it is. There is nothing left to be done. My son has paid the complete price. The sacrifice is gone and the wood is gone. The stones are gone. The water is gone. And I think how the Father then, how I would delight then, having given my son to see someone else live, that I could have the privilege to bow down and hear his own heart beating in their chest.
0: Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Joe Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Joe's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.